This is episode number two of the Govern Yourself Accordingly podcast, the podcast for engaged citizens and public leaders who want to lead change through politics with their integrity intact. My name is Mark Coffin, and I'm your host. Why am I here? Have you ever wondered how criminals who know they can't trust one another are still able to conduct business with each other? Today in the podcast, I speak with Adam Kahane, the author of the new book, Collaborating with the Enemy, how to work with people you don't agree with, like, or trust. The characters in the TV thriller Blacklist, which you just heard a clip from, certainly know a thing or two about that. It's based on the premise that it's worth it for the FBI to collaborate with known mercenary and fugitive Raymond Reddington in order to bring down the people who appear on the blacklists of both Reddington and the FBI. But, at least at the beginning, there are very few things the FBI and Reddington agree on, like or trust about one another. And according to today's guest, someone who has worked to negotiate peace in conflict zones throughout Africa and South America, that's okay. Our mistake is that we were trying to be aseptic, we were trying to be clean, we were trying not to get dirty, and that really limited the effectiveness of what we do. In politics, actually the strongest agreements are those that different people support for different reasons. This is actually what makes them robust. If we all say it's the right thing to do because of this, what if this is no longer true? What if this becomes no longer important? Adam Kahane has been witness to some unlikely collaborations and has taken the time to step back and deconstruct why those collaborations were strong, how they happened, and how you and I can use some of his lessons in navigating collaborations with people we might not agree with, like, or trust. So today on the Govern Yourself Accordingly podcast, I bring you the conversation Adam and I had about collaborating with the enemy. I think I'm understanding my orientation more and more as a pragmatic orientation. How do we deal with the challenges in front of us? All of my work has been with diverse teams of leaders, meaning people with different positions and sectors and perspectives, almost always including politicians or people in politics, but never just people in politics, always people in politics and government and the business sector and activists and community workers, etc. And yeah, I guess the frustration I have is around seeing how many important issues are stuck mm. and how the, the mechanisms we have don't enable us to move forward. You have a honest perspective of having been in a lot of places where decisions are being made, not necessarily being married to the outcome on either side, but at least that how it comes across in reading your books um, and being more in a mediator role. Uh, what is your advice to the people who are on one of the sides, um, not necessarily in a, a facilitator or mediator kind of role? Uh, the main advice I would have for people who have a strong view or position that it needs to be done like this is uh, if you can make that happen, uh, if you can make things the way you want them to be, just with you and your your colleagues and friends, then go ahead. God bless. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't I don't have anything against a forceful uh, unilateral action as long as it's. Uh, legal and non-violent but what's interesting to me is what do you do if that doesn't work what do you do if trying to make 
simply trying to make things the way you want them to be uh, doesn't work because other people want it to be another way or don't agree with what you're doing. And that's the domain I work in. Right. And uh, just as we were setting up, you were mentioning that uh, your, your latest book, Collaborating with the Enemy, has been, I think you said, divorce lawyers and car salesmen are, are recommending the book. Is is there there's something of the everyday factor, I think, that you're you're hitting on. Can you talk a bit about what the, the stimulus was to, to write a book like this? Well, 100% of my experience is in these big... Um, uh, national or global problem-solving areas, whether it's on mm-hmm. climate change or health care or, or land reform. So that's the work I've been doing with my colleagues around the world for 25 years. But by, by inclination, I'm always trying to see what's the What's the basics here? What's the uh, what what's under underlying the phenomena? And the great thing about writing a hundred page book six times over is you can get down to the basics. So I had two motivations for writing the book. Firstly, my work for twenty five years has all been in how can people work together to address the issues they care about. So in a way, supporting and promoting and trying to understand collaboration and in a way this is all the rage now and there's no end of uh, books and speeches and websites uh, talking about how important collaboration is which I agree with but what I see as generally missing in that discourse is an acknowledgement that collaboration is really not easy uh, it often seems impossible, and people do it only, or in many cases, people collaborate uh, because they can't make anything else work. So one of my motivations was to try to rebalance the conversation about collaboration. And the reason I chose this title, Collaborating with the Enemy, uh, even well, uh, which is a provocative title, uh, is that it seems to me that the reason collaboration is intrinsically difficult is it always has this tension that on the one hand, we think we need to work with diverse others to make progress on what we're trying to make progress on. And at the same time, we really are reluctant to do so because we're worried we're going to be required to compromise or even betray uh, what it is we care most about. And that sense of the collaborator as the worst possible uh, figure. So that's one reason I wrote it, was to, to, to try to rebalance the conversation about collaboration, that it's increasingly important and increasingly difficult, and how do we deal with that? But the second reason I wrote it is really related to this thing you mentioned about the book having been picked up by, by not just people doing my work, but people in all kinds of spheres of life, which I'm happy about is that I started to notice that the dynamics I was experiencing uh, in my work on these large-scale issues uh, were being replicated with my work in very ordinary, uh, small circumstances. And that it seemed that there was something that that goes on in large-scale, small-p political engagements, which also shows up in organizations 
in families, uh, in neighborhoods. And that's when I thought maybe I'm on to something here, that there's, there's a dynamic about working together which is uh, the same, literally the same, at all scales from the interpersonal to the international. Hmm. And it's almost as if there's sort of an invitation in the book to kind of practice at the small day-to-day level before, it, you know, things escalate to the, the level of civil war. Is that, is that fair to say? Well, uh, yes. I mean, <laughs> I'd like to avoid civil wars. I've been involved uh, in trying to deal with civil wars in several places, including uh, Sudan and Colombia and, and other less dramatic contexts. So I have an interest in things not uh, degenerating into civil war. I'm not saying so much practice with your partner before you go into politics. What I'm just saying is notice it's the same dynamic. Correct. And therefore that uh, you have a chance to yeah, to practice, to see what works and doesn't work uh, in all contexts. And what you're doing in public life is relevant for what you're doing at home and vice versa. Uh, that there's basic dynamics of what is it like to try to work with people who are different than us, uh, which are the same at all scales. And I think that's helpful. I just wanted to pull up uh, some of the things that you've written in the, in the book. So you said, enemyfying is seductive because it reassures us that we are okay and not responsible for the difficulties we are facing. That seems to be pretty common lately, at least in the circles that I am a part of and the issues I engage with and watching the political drama unfold south of the border and, and even in our country, watching you know, how quickly someone who doesn't meet the, the final check mark on the progressive checklists or doesn't have the right allegiances to a certain group or policy position, it can really quickly get to the point where that person is enemyfied, as you, you would say. Most people probably have some experience with being both the person who's been enemyfied or doing the enemyfying. That seems fairly instinctive. Uh, what do you see as the practical ways that people can work around that and in a way that's an everyday way, I guess? Yeah. Well, I think it's an everyday phenomenon. Uh, this idea of treating other people as if there are our enemies. In other words, people out to harm us. Mm-hmm. And I'm not saying that <clears throat> we never have enemies. But I am saying that we don't have enemies as much as we imagine we do. And that turning turning, turning opponents or people who have a different perspective from us or different interests from us into enemies is in general uh, not a productive activity. Mm-hmm. Well, I should say it can be <clears throat> it can be very productive politically in the short term right. that um, this is a uh, this is a, the, a classic way to mobilize your base is to have them against those other people mm-hmm. but in terms of finding a way forward uh, unless you want to do it by unless you can do, unless you're happy and successful with crushing your opponents uh, enemyfying 
uh, doesn't really work. So, so yes, I, I'm concerned about enemyifying, both in the political realm, but also in, uh, in the ordinary organizational and family realm. I see uh, examples every day, uh, even in these ordinary realms, of people saying, I could never work with, I could never work with that person and turning a, a disagreement into a crisis. And, we, and the result is fragmentation and cutoff and stuckness in organizations and in families and in communities. In another context, somebody called this the narcissism of small differences. <laughs> so, so I'm really uh, concerned with this phenomena and I think the way to deal with it, I think the overall message of my book is, if I can put it in terms that I didn't use in the book, which is uh, relax a little bit, uh, actually to, to move forward on things is always going to require uh, acknowledging and living with difference and disagreement, it's always going to involve just trying to find the next step forward. It's always going to involve thinking about what is it that I need to do next. And the idea that it has to involve agreeing on everything and how it ought to be and what we're going to do and who's going to do what is... Uh, it, uh, does not and can never work. Mm -hmm. So in a way, what I'm calling stretch collaboration is a way of working together that, that can live with pluralism and multiplicity and non-agreement and non-certainty because that's the, that's the reality of the world we live in. And the, the point I was making in the paragraph you read is that one of the reasons enemyifying uh, and these purity checklists and uh, saying I could never work with those people and they're not just wrong, they're evil. One of the reasons these phenomena are so uh, common is they, they let the people who are saying that completely off the hook. This has nothing to do with me. It's right. those people, they need to change or they need to disappear or they need to be eradicated. So by definition, I'm completely letting myself off the hook. Uh -huh. Of course it's easy. I, I noticed when I was writing this book, when you're writing a book, you're, you know, you're tuned in to what's going on around you and what, what you're thinking. And I noticed I could easily spend several hours every day uh, mulling over what other people ought to be doing, what uh, what my clients ought to be doing, what my goddamn colleagues ought to be doing, what my kids ought to be doing, what Mr. Trump ought to be doing. And in a way, it's a very soothing way to, uh, to pass the time because it doesn't involve, it doesn't require anything of me except to be disgruntled. But it is entirely a waste of time. Uh, if you stop there, and I want to come to the then what's the, net, the alternative. But if you stop there, simply 
being upset about what other people are doing, you are completely wasting your time. So it's, I think it's not, well, I think it's impractical, doesn't help. I also think it's immoral in a sense that you're focusing only on other people and not on yourself. Yeah. And there's something kind of self-destructive about it too. You know, if you're not, if you're not improving yourself and you're, what you're saying is that other people aren't going to change. And I heard the expression recently that anger is an acid that does the most damage to the container that it's sitting in. Yeah. I, I think for, for all those reasons, it's really not helpful. Uh, yeah. So the alternative to it, and this is, I think, this is the point I want to clarify from our earlier conversation. Mm -hmm. The alternative is to bring your attention back to the very basic question, what do I need to do next? And that doesn't mean that, uh, what I, I'm, not, I'm not saying that if you change yourself, the world changes. I, I'm not saying that the only thing that matters is self-improvement or self-development. Mm -hmm. I mean, I know there are people who say that. That's not what I'm saying. Right. I'm saying that even if you do conclude that so-and-so or such-and-such a policy or such-and-such a person really needs to change what they're doing for the situation to change, that doesn't absolve you of the of the question, what do I need to do differently to influence the situation and to influence those other people? In other words, what's my role? What's my responsibility in this situation? And what am I going to do next? And I measure my own progress, uh, you know, in this work, not that I never uh, spend time blaming or thinking about what other people ought to do but that uh, I'm a little faster, like rather than it taking months, maybe it only takes weeks, or rather than taking days, maybe it only takes hours, before I can bring myself back to the question, okay, that's all going on, but what is it that I need to do next to, to make things different? I want to ask you about your experience in, in Colombia. So you're brought in to facilitate peace negotiations in the late 90s, and you've written that the experience allowed you to understand that people who have deep disagreements can still get important things done together, and that the bar for making progress on complex challenges is not as high as most people think. We don't need to agree on what the solution is or even what the problem is. And I found the uh, the second piece of that statement to be kind of the most um, unique. I just hadn't heard it before. Uh, wondering if you can talk about how it's possible for people who don't necessarily agree that the problem um, have a similar definition of the problem and what it is, how that can be the grounds and conditions for um, collaboration, perhaps even the ideal conditions. Well, I've worked a little bit in Colombia for a long time, since 1996, so 21 years, um, multiple times with some of the country's leaders, including the current president, through this very difficult violent conflict between or involving uh, left-wing guerrilla armies, right-wing paramilitaries, drug traffickers, the government, uh, landowners, business people, NGOs, etc. 
And it was also one of my first experiences after I started this work uh, 26 years ago in South Africa. Um, and so it's been a, a formative experience for me and a real reference point. And the clearest articulation of this was actually given to me uh, in Colombia exactly a year ago, so October 2016. Uh, the president of Colombia, Juan Manuel Santos, won the Nobel Peace Prize uh, for having uh, succeeded in, in signing a treaty that uh, it ha it is ending this 52-year uh, civil war. And on the day he won the prize, he put on his website, or on the official presidential website, this essay about some, called something like The Road to Peace. And it included the sentence that one of the most significant events in getting to the peace was these workshops uh, in 1996 with his Canadian Adam Kahane. So, of course, I was very happy and immediately uh, made a link between the Rio's Partners website and the presidential website. But actually, I was a bit mystified as to why he would say that, because so many things had been done in Colombia over this period, um, big UN processes, years of negotiations in Havana, uh, uh, President Santos had himself been the Minister of Defense and had uh, prosecuted a, a really tough uh, effort to solve the problem uh, through, through arms. So I didn't understand why was it that he was referring back to this series of small workshops 21 years earlier. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, and, and why did he keep referring to this project, Destino Colombia? He, he brings it up almost every month. So anyhow, in April of this year, 2017, I was in, in Bogota and I had a chance to do a public interview of President Santos. And this is the question I wanted to ask him. Why do you keep referring to Destino Colombia? I'm happy right. about it. Very nice. But I, actually, I, I really don't get it. And he gave a very interesting answer that for me uh, crystallizes the, uh, the, the opportunity here. He said, the reason I keep referring to Destino Colombia is this was the experience where I learned that contrary to my whole political uh, and social upbringing, he comes from a very prominent political and journalistic family, contrary to all of everything I'd learned, it is possible to work with people we do not agree with and will never agree with. And this, uh, this for me is the sharp end of this. Because we imagine often that collaboration and working with people means that, okay, we're gonna ha we have a bit of a misunderstanding, but if we can really talk together in calm and reasoned voices, we're gonna, we're gonna find an agreement and we're gonna act on that agreement. Mm. And, and what he's saying, and I think he's right, it turns out that that's not necessary. And that's a, that for me is on the one hand, uh, well, it's a radical statement, but that's what I mean by lowering the bar, that it is possible to work with people we do not agree with and will never agree with. I had another experience in Colombia, um, a different process, where uh, there was a very heterogeneous group of people, including people with very different ideological and political orientations. And at a certain point of the meeting, 
there was a very sharp difference of principle. And one of the people who was, I think, was a senior uh, opposition politician said, uh, we can't go on until we agree on this principle. And I did something I almost never do because it's not a very smart thing to do, which is to say, uh, just trust me here. Uh, we let, let's just carry on with the process. And anyhow, for whatever reason, um, he agreed, and we didn't debate or agree this principle. And yet, by the end of the workshop, there were lots of things people had agreed to do together. So this was interesting to me, and I asked. Uh, I, I the next day I related this story to a a man named Antanas Mokas. He's one of the most important Colombian politicians. He's a mathematician, former university rector, just brilliant intellectual, had been very innovative mayor of Bogota, twice presidential candidate. And I said, Antanas, how is it that they were able to agree on what to do, even though they didn't agree on this point of principle? And he said, Adam, this is a very well-known and important principle in politics, actually the strongest agreements are those that different people support for different reasons. This is actually what makes them robust. If it's only that we think it's the, if we all say it's, it's the right thing to do because of this, what if this is no longer true? What if this becomes no longer important? So he was making an argument that I'd never heard before, which is that, uh, no, actually we're happy if people support uh, a certain course of action for different reasons. This makes it, this makes it robust. He said it's not an accident that in the Congress we don't record. We record the votes, but not the reasons for the votes. This is this is actually uh, really uh, really liberating. So, my point is to come back to the specific question you asked. What's needed to move forward? is not agreement on the problem. Usually the situations we're dealing with aren't anywhere near as straightforward as problems. They're problematic situations which different people view as problematic for different reasons. So, you know, we there's work to be done in this neighborhood of Montreal that we're sitting in. Some people may think it's about the aesthetics of the neighborhood. Some people may think it's about uh, uh, getting, um, uh, you know, ac uh, better better uh, sh access to their businesses. Other people may think it's about maintaining their position in the council. Uh, somebody else may be interested in it because they're just looking for something to do with their neighbors. They, there isn't a problem that they've all agreed they're going to solve, but they agree that the situation is problematic, and they agree that they need to work on it, and they can agree on some things that they'll do, maybe not together, but that each of them will do to address the situation. So the point about all of this is it lowers the bar. It makes collaboration much less exigent than we imagine it to be. We don't have to agree on the solution or the problem or the plan on who's going to do what. And therefore, there's lots of room to just feel our way forward. Mm. Now, I think everything I'm saying uh, might well be surprising to, to, to ordinary people, might well be surprising to people with a policy background or a 
planning background who thinks who think that an optimum solution is required for every problem. I don't think this is surprising to politicians or diplomats. Hmm. I actually think this is an, the ordinary way that <laughs> this is what I admire about politicians and diplomats is they understand that most situations require us to work with people we don't agree with or like or trust, and that's not an impediment to making progress. When uh, when my book, uh, when I started to talk about my book publicly, was uh, the end of 2016, and I was interviewed on the CBC, and the interviewer said, what advice would you have for Prime Minister Trudeau? It was just before he was going to make his first visit to Washington to, to meet Trump. And there were lots of Canadian Canadians and commentators who were saying, you know, you've got to stand up for us on this. You've got to really tell him off about this. And I said, I don't have any advice for, for Mr. Trudeau. I think this is a very, uh, this is a situation that politicians and diplomats know how to deal with. And in fact, it was a great visit. He, he knew that he had to find a way forward with Trump. He can't ignore Trump or the American administration. It's just not possible. He wasn't going to necessarily agree with him or like or trust him, but he had to find what can we do together. And and he did, and he's still trying to do that, and we'll see whether it works or not. But, uh, but my, I think what I'm saying is actually obvious to skilled politicians and diplomats and just not obvious to the rest of us. And what is it about the the political environment or the culture, what do you, why do you think it's more intuitive in that space or more obvious, to use your words, um, than it would be in the space of everyday life? Well, um, James Hillman said that the reason these things are easier in politics and business is because those are spheres in which power is understood and not rejected. Mm. Uh, I'm not, uh, this isn't an is not an exact quote. I give the, the full quote in my book. But, uh, but that in politics and business, it's understood that different people have different interests, different ambitions. This is normal life. This is what you have to deal with. And there isn't this appeal, this impractical and sentimental appeal to let's just put our personal interests aside and focus on the good of the whole. And this is this interaction, between, uh, this need to work both with the way in which we're all part of a larger whole, which I call love, the drive to unite the separated, and at the same time to work with power, the, the, the needs of each individual whole within the larger whole, power uh, the drive of everything living to realize itself. So Hillman argues that that, that power is not seen as a problematic thing in politics and business, whereas in uh, uh, religious communities and, and social work and uh, other helping professions, mm-hmm. it's seen as a problem. And uh, as Martin Luther King Jr. said, power without love is reckless and abusive. So we understand this, everybody just looking out for their own interests without any sense of the larger whole is reckless and abusive, even genocidal. But King went on to say, 
and love without power is sentimental and anemic. So uh, I think this is crucial and in politics and diplomacy and business, uh, this is very well understood. This is the, sure. the daily work. Uh, uh, and, and in that sense, I think, you know, really bring important perspectives and skills to, to dealing with things. And it seems like there's an understanding of power in political spaces, but perhaps not the same understanding of love as would be there in some of the helping and healing professions. And that kind of drive towards unity is, is lacking? No, no, not at all. Um, <clears throat> when, uh, you know, I wrote a book uh, called Power and Love, A Theory and Practice of Social Change. Mm-hmm. And I... Um, the Spanish edition of the book was published by a political unit within the United Nations, which I was happy about. It's important for me to have the book published in Spanish. But again, I didn't understand why was this book of interest to them. And the head of that unit, um, a Bolivian political scientist named Antonio Aranibar, said, Adam, all politics is about power and love. In other words, all of politics Uh, daily politics is about how can we move forward uh, with a larger ambition which requires us to come together and at the same time uh, working with the interests of the parts. So it's all about how to deal with holes and parts, holes and parts, holes and parts. And a skillful politician can do that. My favorite example um, my longtime colleague Betty Sue Flowers uh, was the director of the uh, Lyndon Baines Johnson Presidential Library in Austin uh, when I published this book Power and Love. And she said, "If you want to, if you want to really understand Power and Love, study study LBJ." Sure. And uh, I'm a Canadian. I I didn't know much about uh, the story of LBJ. I said, "What should I read?" She said, "Read Master of the Senate." which is this very important uh, biography uh, by a man, um, Robert Caro, who has written four huge volumes of LBJ biography. And this is the volume, huge book, I don't know, 400 pages, all about the period which many people consider to be the height of uh, LBJ's uh, political skill, which is when he was the Democratic leader in the Senate. At, and specifically about how, as Democratic leader of the U.S. Senate, he succeeded in getting the first piece of civil rights legislation through the Senate in 100 years. Uh, Sorry, I don't remember which of the bills because there were several of them, but I, anyhow, the the Civil Rights Act, or one of the Civil Rights Acts. And not only that, he had been elected as Democratic leader on the understanding that he would never, ever, ever do that. (laughs) And it's a really fascinating book. And what I took out of this book uh, is that the genius uh, of Johnson or and of politicians like Johnson is he knew better than anybody, how do you reconcile the interests of the parts and the interests of the whole, which is completely about power and love. Mm-hmm. And the, the biographer said of him that in his whole political career, uh, ambition and compassion had been in opposition because he'd always been interested in civil rights in a mm-hmm. certain way. And he'd always chosen ambition. But for the first time in his career, 
uh, ambition and compassion were aligned. In other words, what he thought really needed to be done for the country was aligned with what he needed to do to become the Democratic presidential mm. uh, uh, nominee. Or right. anyhow, I'm, I'm not getting the titles exactly right. And the specific incident in the book, which amazed me, because it showed a skill that I don't have at all, is there's this vignette where uh, Schlesinger, the Harvard historian, goes to visit Johnson at his ranch in Texas, and Johnson regales him for hours without Schlesinger getting a word in edgewise, going through every single one of the Democratic senators that he was leading, and for each and every one explaining, you know, how to influence them, whether you reach them at their wife's home or their mistress's home, whether you get to them through their lawyer or their clergyman, whether they're most influenced by the electricity lobby or the farmer lobby. In other words, the skill required to pass this once in a hundred year piece of legislation mm -hmm. was the skill required, which is about love, about the good of the whole, right. was the skill required to know exactly in, in, in very fine detail what is it that mattered and could be used to influence each of these 50 people. So it wasn't as though Johnson said, this is what's needed for the good of the whole, let's all get behind civil rights, it's our moral duty. He did say that, right. and it was influential, but he also knew exactly what did he have to do to pay off, who did he have to give a damn to in their district, mm -hmm. who did he have to strong arm via their brother-in-law. Right. And that, for me, is the, the perfect example of employing power and love. And he was considered, at least in that stage of his career, the master politician, the greatest Senate majority leader of that era. Yeah, and it's interesting here you talk about that. It sounds similar to the stories, uh, and I'm not sure if they're making national news, but similar to the stories of Alan J. McKechn, uh, former Deputy Prime Minister of Canada, recently deceased, who played a similar role from for what I'm hearing for, I guess, the first time, but others have known for a while, um, in getting the Canada Health Care Act through and bringing public health care uh, to Canada with others who have uh, gotten probably more credit for it, Tommy Douglas and others in Parliament at that time time. I anticipate because we have a lot of conversations at Springtide, I have a lot of conversations with people for whom that kind of um, manipulation or strategizing, I think it creates an edge or it, it's on an edge that uh, people are not necessarily willing to cross because they think that um, it's kind of dirty or manipulative. There's uh, an exchange between John Stewart, um, the former Daily Show host, who is being interviewed by David Axelrod, the former Obama strategist. And David Axelrod asked him, "Should young people be engaged in politics?" And John Stewart's answer was, "Get in, get into it, and don't be, don't get it on you." And I think a lot of people, uh, they hear that and they laugh, but they also think of, you know, what you're describing as the getting it on you part, like the, this feeling of, you know, it shouldn't have to, to be that way. Yeah. So <clears throat> I'm, I'm not saying that everything that goes on in politics is, uh, is worthy of emulation. And so I'm not making a generalization that everything all politicians do is, is a good thing. But I think I am fundamentally disagreeing with that. With, that, with the premise you just outlined. Because for me, what's involved in working 
with power as well as love uh, is recognizing that different people have different understandings and interests and backgrounds and cultures and that that's the way things are and to uh, to say well can't we just put all that aside and focus on this one thing that I think is important or some some larger um, abstract whole of the community or the country or the globe to me that's more manipulative that's it. Uh, because when I say to you could you just put aside what matters to you let's focus on the good of the whole mm-hmm. what that really means is fo- can you put aside what matters to you and focus on what I think is more important right. and I, I notice this because of my role as a facilitator so when you're in a a group of different uh, actors from different parts of a system and when the facilitator says could you all just leave your agendas on at the door and focus on this thing we're all here to do there's only one person in the room for whom their own agenda and the agenda of the meeting are the same and that person is the facilitator so of course the facilitator or the boss can say that but everybody else, they have lots of things they're trying to deal with. They yes, they they have the concern of the the, the subject of the meeting, the what the community should do or the organization should do. They have their own department, they have their family, they have their political position, they have their business, whatever. And to ask them to put that aside, to me, is 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 manipulative. Right. Um, so so no, what I'm the point I'm making is that the reality of the situation is we have different people, different interests with uh, with uh, really um, different concerns and different things they need to do, different uh, different um, ambitions and to be to be productive and to be respectful and to be democratic, you have to deal with that. So one of the Colombians said to me uh, when we were talking about what could we have done better in in uh, in that work in 1996, we exclu- we included in that work in 1996 the guerrillas and the. Uh, the business community and certain politicians, but we excluded the uh, the then uh, government, the government of Samper, uh, Ernesto Samper, because Samper was thought to have taken bribes from uh, from narco traffickers. Mm-hmm. So they were excluded from the work we did, and in the end, ended up greatly limiting the effectiveness of the work we did because they were excluded. And the organizer of the project, uh, Manuel Jose Carvajal, said to me many years later, our mistake is that we were trying to be aseptic. It's exactly this image. We were trying to be clean. We were trying not to get dirty, and that really limited the effectiveness of what we do. So yes, I, I am saying that if you want to deal with the world as it is, and you're not a dictator that can just 
steamroll over everybody's different mm -hmm. uh, interests and particular needs, then yes, you have to, both for practical and I would argue for moral reasons, you have to be willing to engage with the minutiae and the dirt of, of what different people want and need. And I think this is particularly important in Canada where for me the the um, one of the really hopeful characteristics or potentials in Canadian society and Canadian politics is we're willing to live with pluralism mm. and pluralism doesn't just mean a different kinds of uh, ethnic food in restaurants it means that there are ways in which we are different, which we disagree, where we have different understandings and ambitions and even cosmologies that will not be harmonized. Mm -hmm. That's the lesson for me of the residential schools. Don't try to make everybody the same, but therefore you have to be willing to deal, to live with this permanent difference mm -hmm. and permanent disagreement. So I want to close with a question that I end up holding onto a lot of the time after I read your books and books like yours, which is that a lot of the ideas are, are very compelling and attractive at a rational level. Uh, but then when I get into situations or more often, you know, when I'm an hour and a half away from a situation where I would have had an opportunity to practice something that you've taught, that's when I realized that um, the more emotional part of my brain probably hijacked the rational part in that situation. And I wonder if you might have a piece of advice or two uh, that you could suggest for folks that are, you know, on board with the spirit of what you're saying in, in your book, um, but then perhaps uh, worry that in, you know, the heat of the moment when we have an opportunity to practice um, that you know our rational faculties escape us we might not have the instincts to act in those moments yeah I do have a piece of advice and I'm not sure it's about rational or emotional uh, I think they're both important faculties but uh, uh, but for me the the most basic skill in working with diverse others, working with multiple holes, working with power and love, those are all equivalent statements. The most basic skill relates to how we talk and how we listen, because that's the, the basic substance of, of how we, we work with others by talking and listening. And the, the trap we often fall into uh, is what uh, what Otto Sharma calls downloading. So there's an idea about what's going on or what needs to go on. I have this idea about what's going on or what ought to go on or about the truth of the situation, and I just keep repeating it. Um, because I uh, probably because I think this is actually the whole of the story. Uh, that the picture in my mind is the whole truth, or maybe because I'm afraid if I said what I really thought, uh, it would be impolite or, or dangerous in some way. Hmm. And so in, in talking and listening, and I, I elaborate on a longer version of what I'm going to say in the book, 
But in this talking and listening, the first challenge is to escape from downloading, which means to escape from the from operating as if what I'm thinking is the truth about the situation. And uh, years ago, somebody pointed out a very helpful uh, helpful way to escape from this, which is when I find myself pounding the table with with certainty about the truth is, and let me just tell you again what what you need to know and what you need to do and uh, and so on, to just put at the beginning of the sentence, in my opinion. <laughs> and if that doesn't work, try in my humble opinion. And it's sort of funny, uh, but it contains within it, I think, a, a really help, helpful capacity, which is just to, to take a little distance from, yes, this is what I think, I'm, I'm not going to hide what I think, mm -hmm. but it's my opinion about the situation, right. or it's this is what my experience leads me to believe, and therefore opening up the possibility that, you know, maybe as we talk about it, I'll see it from another perspective, maybe you can attack that idea, you're not attacking me. So the, the simple suggestion is just open up a little bit of distance, suspend your beliefs or your position you may at the at the end of the interaction still think the same thing you thought at the beginning so it's suspend not abandon but you're opening up the possibility that maybe as we talk about this i can see it in a different way or see another aspect of this or see another part of the situation that's that's also important and and that that loosening up or that suspending of the downloading mm -hmm. reflex, which also often has this enemyfying dimension. Right. What I, what the truth is that you need to do something different. Right. So they often go together. Uh, this for me is a very practical thing that can be done in, in all of the situations we've been talking about. Hmm. Well, thank you. I, I was laughing because uh, in a heated discussion with my partner this weekend she gave me the exact advice you know, it would just be better if you said in my opinion at the yeah. beginning of whatever it is you're about to say uh, that we disagree on so she'll be happy to hear that um, well Adam thank you for your time and uh, good luck in whatever is next for you thank you That was this week's episode of the Govern Yourself Accordingly podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in. And as always, you can find the links to any of the uh, articles, resources, and books that were mentioned in the show by scrolling through the episode description and the show notes, which are also posted over at springtide.ngo slash GYA2. That's for Govern Yourself Accordingly episode two. Govern Yourself Accordingly is a podcast produced by Springtide, and we are a Canadian charity committed to helping you lead change through politics with your integrity intact. Find us at springtide.ngo, facebook.com slash springtideco, or on Twitter at springtideco. You can find me on Twitter at Mark Coffin. Subscribe to the podcast, search for Govern Yourself Accordingly wherever you listen to podcasts. If you're listening on a web browser, you can also subscribe for email updates if you scroll down on this post and get a message whenever a new show is released every Tuesday. There are a couple things you can do to help the show. A big one is rate and review the podcast in Apple Podcasts. You can also share this podcast on Facebook or Twitter. 
You can find an easy to share link at springtide.ngo slash GYA followed by the show number. Better yet, if you thought of someone during this conversation, during this episode, someone who might appreciate hearing one of the messages that was shared in the show, why not send them a personal message with a link to this episode? 